Our passage is Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. If you want to turn in your Bibles there. This week, as we all know, is Thanksgiving. We kind of mentioned that already. One of the things that we always talk about in Thanksgiving is, is what are we grateful for? What are the things that we really are, are thankful for? You know, we always, we always say that we're thankful for family, for friends, for our health, for our work, even our church. And I, I have to say that for me personally, I'm very, very thankful for our church. I'm thankful for each of you who continue to serve Jesus in his kingdom every single day. It is a joy and an honor to be your pastor and the pastor of this church. And I, I really believe that we have many great days ahead of us in 2024. It is really hard to think that we are near the end of this year. And what a year it has been. Well, this morning is, uh, is about, pa our passage this morning, sorry, is about service. It is about how the church was growing early on in Acts and it was growing to the point where it needed more people in service to help. As I said, it's, we're going to be looking at Acts 6, 1 through 7. So I'm glad you already have your Bibles open. I will open mine and we will read the passage together. Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. It's amazing we're already in Acts chapter 6. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of, spirit, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Before we get started, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, I just thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here, Lord, and to serve you and to speak about this passage that you have for us here in Acts chapter 6. Lord, I pray that this morning as we talk about service and what that means, that we would really understand what was going on in this church and how that relates to us as we go forward today. Father God, I just pray that you would bless this message and that you would speak through me, through your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now before we get started, we need to get a little bit of background information because there were a couple of different cultures that were growing up in church at the time. We can see from the passage that the Hellenists were there, and the Hellenists were most likely Gentiles who had converted from Judaism, uh, and they spoke Greek. 
And because they spoke a language that was different, like most cultures, they find themselves kind of enclosed in themselves. It wasn't like there was a split in the church in any way. There was still unity over the gospel. But as cultures do by language and things that they do, they kind of gathered together. Um, so when we think about this, we think of Dorcas, and you might have heard of her if you're familiar with your Bible. In Acts 9.39, she was probably a member of the Hellenistic culture. And the Hebrews, the second group, the Hebrews of the Jews here in verse 1, were more of the native Aramaic-speaking culture of the time. Now this church, the church was still mostly centered in Jerusalem. It hadn't quite busted out yet, but as we get we're getting really close in Acts now to where the church is going to begin its, its spread. Scholars point out that this period was approximately five years now after Pentecost. And at the time, there were two distributions, distributions, easy for me to say, distributions of resources. And the first one was a weekly distribution of funds, of money, that happened on Fridays, and that was enough to buy 14 different meals. And that was known as the cuppa, the cuppa. The second one was the daily distribution of food. And that one, it was called the tomway, the tomway. Now, these distributions seem to have been borrowed from the Jewish tradition outside the Christian culture. Uh, this may have been embraced by the early church to allow them to fulfill the task that we saw in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, that there wouldn't be any needy among them. Now, this is something that I didn't know, but it's interesting to note that the Hellenist Christians were made up a lot of older folks who had migrated to Jerusalem so that when they died, they could be buried in the holy city. And so, as happens in a lot of cultures, the men tended to die first, and so there were quite a few widows left behind with nowhere to go and no resources, hence why they had very few assets and needed to be a part of the, of the distribution of food. Now, knowing these things will help us to understand what was happening as we go through our passage today. So let's look at the first four verses as we go forward. Our message is going to have three points. You'll see three points. And the first one that we're going to look at is the need. The second will be the choosing, and finally, the blessing. So the first four verses, we'll remind ourselves of these. This is, this is the need being pointed out. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, those were the, the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned, the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, we can see right away, there are some great things happening here. The, dis the number of disciples was growing the number of disciples, followers of Jesus were growing, and the church was actively getting larger. And the Lord was continually adding numbers to his church. He was blessing it. And it was becoming difficult for just 12 men to make sure that every, 
aspect of the ministry was being covered. They needed help. It was hindering their primary responsibility, which was to preach and teach the word of God. And there began to be some murmuring going on in the church that part of their congregation was being neglected. The Hellenist widows were being neglected. Now, we have to understand that this wasn't an in, uh, this wasn't intentional that they were being neglected. They may not even have known that they were being neglected until they heard about it, but it was something that just happened because of the enormity of what they were trying to do. You know, we're talking about over 5,000 people and 12 men trying to take care of them themselves. It was a lot to do. So they were simply just being overwhelmed. And this was bogging them down from doing their called purpose, which was to pray for the church and to minister to the word of God. They were called to teach and to witness to the lost. Now we have to understand this. We have to keep in mind what is happening here. The history of what is happening is because the 12 apostles at the time, they were unique people. They, they were the ones who were with Jesus for three years. Once they were gone, there would be no more apostles. There would be no more eyewitnesses who spent time with Jesus for three years. And so it would be silly for them to spend all of their time doing service and not taking all the teachings that Jesus had given them out to the people to share it with as many as they could while they were still here with us. It's amazing to think about that, right? I mean, that is their job. They were given that. What a responsibility. What a joy that must have been for them to take this time filled with the Holy Spirit and share the good news of Jesus with whoever they came in contact with. And they did it without fear, as we saw. They stood before the leaders and they stuck up for Jesus. They would not back down. These were men who were strong. Now, this doesn't mean, though, that the social side of the gospel <coughs> excuse me, in meeting the needs of the widows and orphans was beneath them. It wasn't at all, or that it was not as important. It was incredibly important. In fact, in James 1.27, James tells us, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So God knew that taking care of widows and orphans and the needy was very important, and so did the apostles. And so they did not want anyone to be neglected. But they also realized what their calling was for, and that was the most important thing that they could do. This wasn't arrogance on their part that they wanted to parse this out to someone else. This was wise obedience on their part. In verse 2, we read that the apostles, they recognized the problem. They assessed their priorities, and as we had just talked about, explained to the congregation what they had found out, their solution, their idea. And then in verse 3, we see that they delegated the responsibility to finding suitable leaders to them, to the congregation, to the people. And verse 3 tells us that the congregation was to look for four specific things. There were four specific things that they were, they were uh, 
given to find among these men. And the first one, of course, is that they were to be seven men. Seven men. These seven men were not going to be the only people doing service in the community. That was, the task was becoming too great. But they were to lead up the effort. They were to make sure the needs were met and people were cared for. They were going to be in charge. They had authority, of course. They worked under the authority of the apostles who worked under the authority, as we all do, under the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why they were to be men. Two, they were to have good reputations among the people. These men needed to be men that other people would follow and respect as leaders. They had to be known as honest, respectful men by the people that they would be in charge of. So this is why the congregation was given the task to choose, because they would know whom they would trust, who would follow, whom they would follow. And so they were given the task by the apostles to find these men who had these qualities. Because, obviously, they would be the ones who would be following them. The third one is that they were to be full of the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. They were to be believers, right? Believers, Christians who are filled by the Holy Spirit. They had to be people who were transformed in their faith and were sold out to follow Jesus. Men who uh, demonstrated a Christ-like life that loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And also people who had compassion and love for others. They had to love people. They had to be like Jesus. And then the fourth one is they were to be wise. They were to have the ability to make sound decisions and be able to handle a lead role without becoming arrogant. They had to be humble men. They had to be able to handle money. And as Proverbs 1.7 tells us, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They had to be men who feared the Lord. Now, this is just a basic list of qualifications for these men who scholars identify as the first deacons in the Bible. Now, the idea of shared leadership goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 18, when Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, advised him to share his leadership responsibilities with others so that he could concentrate on the most important tasks that he had, the biggest issues that would come to the group of people, the Israelite nation, so that he could make wise judgments and also be the leader of the Israelites for the Lord. This was what Moses was to do. And then we read in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, that Paul lists another list of qualifications for deacons. And it's, it's similar to the list in Acts 6, but slightly more detailed. And it says here, starting in uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, <clears throat> not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons and if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. 
Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their whole and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. They were to be exemplary men. Now, there's a list above that for elders. And if you were to go there and read that and also one in Titus. Now, this is a list of what qualifications were to be for deacons. But let's be clear, for mature Christians, this is a list that all of us should strive to achieve. This is not just so that you can become a deacon or an elder. This is what a mature disciple of Christ looks like. Now, this list would indicate that only men could hold the office of deacon. But then if you're a studier of scripture, in Romans 16, 1 through 2, Paul mentions Phoebe as a sister in the Lord, whom he calls a servant or a deaconess. Now in the ESV in Romans 16, it says, I commend you, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a, very, in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of mine and myself as well. Now, some translations use deacon or deaconess instead of servant in Romans 16.1 because it is the same Greek word for servant that they use also for deacon, which is diakonos, diakonos. Now, it is my understanding from Scripture that a case can be made for either side, whether or not women are allowed to be deacons or only men are allowed to be deacons as they are elders, as we talked about this summer. <clears throat> but I really don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that because that's not what this passage is about. But if, and I know that people have strong opinions one way or the other, and that's okay. If you want to have coffee with me and we want to duke it out, we can, we can talk about it. I'd love to do that. So come and see me after service and we'll, we'll set up a time to have coffee. But let me say this. Let me just say this about this. And whether men or women or just men can be deacons is not really the point. It doesn't preclude anyone from being a servant for the sake of the kingdom of God. All of us, men and women, are called to be servants. We are called to be servants. We are uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit when we give our lives to Jesus to serve him. And we follow this because Jesus himself said that he came to serve. Mark 10, 45 is one of the three passages where Jesus says this. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve, and we are all also called to serve him as well. So I know that that was a lot in just the first four verses, but that's really what the meat of this passage is about. And we have to understand what was happening at the time, and we need to understand what the qualifications were for these men who are going to assume this new role as deacons. And we can see that serving under the apostles was not a subservient role. It was an important and it was an honorable role, a position ordained by the Lord through the apostles to share their duties so that the apostles could concentrate on what they were called to do. 
which is, again, prayer and preaching of the word of God to the masses. Today we see this division of duties in churches between pastor elders and deacons. And it is important to remind ourselves, <clears throat> again, that the apostles were unique. They were unique, and pastors are not apostles. I am not an apostle. But I will say that I do not know a single pastor in the Calvary family of churches who is not a servant at heart. Every one of us are servants at heart. None of us put ourselves above cleaning toilets, taking out trash, or making coffee. There isn't a task in the church that any of us as pastors wouldn't or haven't already done. But we're not able to handle every task in the church on our own, no matter the size of our church. There are a lot of things that need to be done, and we need your help. And one of the things that I am most grateful for here at Calvary is that we have a congregation of servants. All of you have been willing and are willing to help in the ministry of the church, taking on all the tasks, no matter how small and menial they are, no matter how great they are, you are willing to take them on, and I am grateful for you. So we need your help. We need your help. You make my job more enjoyable. So thank each and every one of you. Now as we turn to the next couple of verses, verses 5 and 6, we're going to see that the people were actually pleased. They were pleased to be able to pick these men out of their own group. Let's read what they say. All right, starting in verse 5. <clears throat> and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And as we just mentioned in verse 5, the decision to pick these were from among the people, right? And notice that the unity here, the church... The church was unified. The whole congregation was pleased. Now, many of us who have been in the church world long enough know that the fact that the entire congregation was pleased by the decision of the leadership is rare. That there's always someone who's going to disagree with some decision that you make. It's just normal. We're people. We have different personalities. We have different views on things. But unity over what the church is supposed to be is beautiful. And then Luke reveals those seven names, which I'm not going to read again. Luke lists Stephen first, and he really lays out who Stephen is as a person. Now, when you think about how people would talk about you, would you not like to be known as Stephen is known, as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit? It really attests to Stephen being a man who truly gave his life to Jesus and had a transforming experience. He was not the same. He was a new creation. Now he is listed first because he is a prominent person when we pick Acts back up after the first of the year. Now shameless plug, the next few weeks we're going to be starting our Advent series and so we won't be picking Acts up again until after the first of the year. But Stephen, as many of you know, and some of you might not know, <clears throat> he, 
He is an important person for the next one and a half chapters in Acts. In the list of names, only Philip is brought up again in Scripture, and we'll hear of him again, too, as we go through. But the other five lived in obscurity, at least to us, but probably not to the people whom they served. But they didn't do it to be in the headlines. They didn't become deacons because, well, I wanted my name to be in the Bible forever. They did it because they were servants. They did it because they loved people and they wanted the widows to be served. And what did they serve? They served the poor. <clears throat> Some commentators indicate that these seven men were all Greek Hellenists and were chosen for the specific task of caring for the poor and needy widows in the Hellenist population that was being ignored because that's where the problem initiated. There was an unfulfilled need and they were to fill it. They were to distribute food and alms to the poor. <clears throat> because we know that Jesus himself had a heart for the poor and the downtrodden and we are called to have that same mindset. Jesus said this as he began his ministry after being baptized and tempted, he went into the synagogue and he read from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus had a heart for the underdog. Jesus has a heart for those who deal with suffering. And when we read the Gospels, we see how Jesus healed the leper. He gave sight to the blind. He allowed the deaf to hear. He raised the dead. He even had compassion on those who were crucifying him when he said to his father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He served his father's will perfectly for his life. And when he went to the cross, he did it willingly as a servant. In his high priestly, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus said he accomplished the work that his father had given him to do. Now this selection of deacons allowed the apostles to spend their time doing the things that God had called them to do, to follow Jesus' example and to proclaim the good news to the poor and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was their job. First Peter 4.1 says this. Peter writes, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are to speak and we are to serve in such a way as to glorify Christ. Now, in what part are we supposed to do this? Just half of what we do or a quarter or whenever we feel like it? No, Peter says, in everything we do. Everything we do, whether we are working at church, putting in a furnace filter, 
vacuuming the carpet, doing laundry, serving a meal, changing a diaper, washing dishes, you name it. All of it is done for the glory of Christ. Oswald Chambers said this, he said, have you ever realized that you can give things to God that are of value to him? Or are you just sitting around daydreaming about the greatness of his redemption while neglecting all the things you could be doing for him? I'm not referring to the works which could be regarded as divine and miraculous, but ordinary, simple, human things. Things which would be evidence to God that you are totally surrendered to him. Have you ever thought that cleaning the toilets in the church or anywhere else would be to the glory of God? But it is. It is. It doesn't matter what you do, it is to his glory, and he sees it. John Wesley wrote this. He said, one of the principal rules of religion is to lose no occasion of serving God. And since he, the Lord, is invisible to our eyes, we are to serve him in our neighbor, which he, the Lord, receives as if it were done to himself standing visibly before us. Have you ever thought that what you are doing, whether you are in sin or whether you are serving him, that he is there? He is there, seeing exactly what it is that you are doing. Imagine that. And we know that he is there because as believers, we have the Holy Spirit in us. He is always with us. The Spirit is always with us. And so whatever it is that we do, even though we can't see Jesus right now, he is with us. Whatever it is that we do, whether we're serving a big meal to the neighborhood, like yesterday, whether we're changing someone's tire, whether we're wiping off counters, whether we're spraying for bugs, it doesn't matter what we do he is with us. And that should give us great strength and courage and love. God is with you. And next week we're going to talk more about what that means. <clears throat> and then, and then in verse 6, the people set their choices before the apostles to receive approval. And then the apostles laid hands on them, and he prayed for them. Now, some might say that this is an early version of, of ordination, and that may or may not be true. But what is relevant is that the apostles took the recommendations from the people, and they gave them their approval, and they prayed for them and laid hands on them. And this was to signify that they had been given authority by the apostles to lead this ministry to the widows, to be a part of the distribution of food, and to do this under the authority of the apostles who are under the authority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This should not be something that we take lightly. When we lay hands on people, it's intentional. We are ordaining them, we, well, not always ordaining them, but we are commissioning them, and that's the word I was looking for, commissioning them to do service, to go out from among us, to give them 
approval, to let them know that the Lord has given them the authority to do what they are about to do. Laying on of hands is an important task in a church. We do this here at Calvary when we select men as elders and deacons. Now we go through training. We have to go through training. We don't just become an elder or a deacon. There is training. <clears throat> and sometimes that training takes a while. It can take like six months to a year before we will bring someone to the church. Now we do this by having a meeting and we'll bring someone's name through and you, the congregation, the members of the church, those who have said, this is my local body that I will serve, <clears throat> and you get to vote on them. You get to have a say. You get to approve them, just like these people did. It's, it's an important thing. So, so far, as we've looked through our passage, we've seen the need, and we see how they were chosen, but what what was the Lord's response to all of this that was happening? What was the result of this action? And we see that in verse 7. We see that in verse 7, which is the blessing. The blessing. Verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And as we look at this, right away we see, we see three things here in verse 7. We see three things to take note of. And the first one is the word continued to increase. The second one is that the number of disciples multiplied. And the third one is that the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, let's take each one of these separately and go through them quickly. The, the word increased. The word increased. This is amazing. This is important. Because since the apostles were free to pray, and they were free to preach without distractions, the word and its impact increased. They were able to do the work that they had been called to do and share the gospel with the masses, and people were coming to Christ. And the word was spreading throughout Jerusalem. And God was blessing that. Why? Because they were able to concentrate their efforts on exactly what God had called them to do. The second one is that the number of disciples multiplied. The number of disciples multiplied. Now, it sounds a lot like number one, but it's not. It's different. And here's why. Because we know that not all people that we share the gospel with are going to become Christians. It just is the way it is. It's just the way it is. God hasn't elected everyone. If you're not of the Reformed faith and you are an Arminian, you know that when you are out sharing the gospel, not everybody is going to respond. Now, I'm of the Reformed faith, and I know that God has elected those, so there are those who will, but there are those who won't. Also with that, not everyone who proclaims Christ was going to become a disciple. It just isn't. I know that from personal experience, working with a lot of people over a great number of years. Because you know why? Because being a disciple is hard work. It's not easy. It requires effort. 
Not everyone wants to put in effort. I know many people have told me and said, look, Scott, that's great for you. It's great for other people. I have said the prayer, and I am in, and I am good. And I'm just going to live. And I have to tell you that that is dangerous ground to be walking on. Dangerous ground to be walking on. That is not what I would put my faith on, just that I said a simple prayer and then ignored Jesus the rest of my life. No, a disciple is a learner. A learner. Discipleship takes work. Discipleship takes prayer. It takes study. It takes being involved in God's work. It takes having someone who has been through it, sharing themselves with you, pouring into you what someone has poured into them. And then for you, as you grow as a disciple, to do the same for others. This is how God ordained the church to grow. This is how it goes. Second Timothy 2.2, one of my favorite verses, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see what's happening there? Think of this. Someone poured into Paul. Peter did. Poured into Paul. Paul is pouring into Timothy. Timothy is pouring into others. And those people are pouring into others. Do you see how that works? It's progressive. This is what God wants us to be like. This is what discipleship is. This is what the church is about. We are called to make disciples of all nations. That is what God has told us to do. So we are to be disciple makers, and not just disciple makers, but disciple makers who make disciples. We are to be multiplying. And the third thing is this, is that priests became obedient to the faith. Now when we just read that without any background, it sounds great, but what does that really mean? What does it mean that the priests became <coughs> obedient to the faith? Well, this is really an amazing development. A lot of these priests were Sadducees. And we know Dennis told us all about the Sadducees last week, right? He explained who they were and how obedient, how disobedient to God that they could be. But now we read how they were becoming obedient to the faith. They were starting to have faith in Jesus, as the word spread, as discipleship grew, the priests <coughs> were witnessing all of this around them and started to realize there's something to this. We need to investigate it more. And the more they investigated it, the more they came to the idea that Jesus is the one. And they became more obedient to the faith. They had more understanding. What a testimony this is to the grace and mercy of our Lord and his use of his word. It transforms lives. When we surrender ourselves and place our faith and trust in Christ alone, it transforms our life too. As we know, we, we become a brand new creation, made new in him. Jesus came. And he went to the cross and he shed his blood. He, ascend, he resurrected and he ascended 
Because it was finished, he sat down at the right hand of his father. And we wait for his return, but this hope that we have, this putting our faith and trust in the truth of the gospel message allows us to have forgiveness of sin. Repentance is a beautiful word that God allows us to turn from our life headed towards death into him and his loving arms to receive his forgiveness and to have eternal life with him instead of eternal death. That's what these priests were seeing. That's what they were hearing. That's what they were believing in. And as believers, we know that the Holy Spirit comes, as we talked about, and dwells inside of us. It turns us from dead people to living, eternal life people. It is awesome to think about what God has done. And again, as we see in verse 7, the church has yet not moved out of Jerusalem. But shortly, when we get back into Acts in January, we're going to see how the, the church started to move. And as we get further into Acts, we're going to see how it moved throughout Asia. And it's just a beautiful thing how God did this. But he's building, he's building the core. He's building the core that he is going to use to explode the gospel message throughout the world. And what's interesting to note is in the, this section here in verse 7 that the verb tenses are what's called the imperfect tense. Now, I know that that doesn't mean much, but let me put it to you this way. Reading a scholar who's talking about the different verb tenses in the Greek, he said this about the perfect and imperfect tenses. He said, it is like God is unveiling a picture to us piece by piece. It is something that has happened, but is continuing to happen. It's like when you open the curtains first thing in the morning, little by little, and soon the sun comes out, and you see, well, I know it's Lahanta, but the beautiful landscape that is in front of us, right? I mean, it is beautiful to open this, the window and see the light, and that is what God is doing little by little. What does this mean for us? This is still happening today. We are a part of this unveiling. What happened here in Acts chapter 6 continues to happen now. <clears throat> when we call faithful servants to be deacons and elders, when people give their lives to Jesus and serve him, and we see these very things happening where the word increases, discipleship is growing, and people are coming to faith. Those who are skeptical now are believers. God continues to do this work through you, through me, through others. This is a picture of what we see today. Isn't it a beautiful thing? Aren't you glad you're a part of God's kingdom and you get to see this unveiling happen before your eyes? Our church is better served if others share in the leadership. It can't be a one-person show, and I'm thankful that here it isn't. And I will never let it be. If I start getting egotistical and start becoming a control freak and holding everything in, please come and rebuke me, because I don't believe in that, and that is not how God 
has the church designed to be. We each have things that we are called to do, and we each need to be about his business in our lives. Now, we don't have any deacons in our church right now, and we currently only have one elder. Now, as a church, we believe in the plurality of elders for this very reason that I just said. And so, with that, just so you know, I do have what we call provisional elders, so that I'm not the only one making decisions on behalf of all of us. Now, Dennis helps me because he's here, and he's the pastor of Calvary Los Animas. But I also consult with Jeff DeClue at Calvary Englewood, and I also have Matt, who's helping me in Monta Vista. So there is a plurality of elders, even though they're not resident here. Now, we're looking to grow elders and deacons in our church. And so I'm going to ask you this, that if you are interested in being a deacon, is what we're looking for first. If you desire to be an elder, I would love to talk to you as well. Come and talk to me. We'd like to start training in these positions sometime after the first of the year, depending on not, whether or not someone is willing to be a part of this. The training will take about six months to a year to go through, and we'll examine your life as we examine my life, and we'll figure out whether or not this is what God has called you to do. And for elders, it's the same thing. And I would ask you as our congregation that if there's anyone in our church that you feel I should talk to that maybe I haven't yet who would like to, please let me know. And I will talk to them. We'll talk. But this is what the church is to be. We know that in our valley that there is a lot of poverty and hurting. And we know that there is a lot of poor. And we need to be about serving them, which we are. And I'm grateful for that. But I need your help. I need your prayers for sure. And I thank you for each, each of those prayers that you give me. And as we grow in number, I pray that we grow also in depth and understanding of God's word. Because the more we know, the more we can be obedient to God and his truth. So thanks for everything that you have done. For me, this Thanksgiving, I am grateful and thankful for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we just thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for bringing about deacons and elders in the church to help in shared leadership. I pray, God, that this morning, that if there is someone here in our congregation who you have touched their heart, who wants to be an elder, pastor, or a deacon, Lord, I pray, God, that you would bring them forward so that we can identify them and help them to grow, Lord, in this position. Father God, I thank you so much for those who are here. If there's someone here this morning who hasn't given themselves to you as a believer, if they have not surrendered their life to you, if they have not felt the joy of forgiveness, Lord, I pray that they would give their life to you this morning. I praise you and thank you, Lord, and I'm so grateful for everything that you do for us. In your name we pray, amen.